0: This is a download of Chicago Audio Works, the podcast of the University of Chicago Press. For more information, go to the website www.press.uchicago.edu. And welcome to Chicago Audio Works, the brand new podcast from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, contributor Gordon Buffong will be speaking with William Grabner about his new book, "Patty's Got a Gun: Patricia Hearst in 1970s America." William Grabner is the author of many books, including "The Age of Doubt: American Thought and Culture in the 1940s," and "Coming of Age in Buffalo: Youth and Authority in the Postwar Era."
1: We are speaking with William Grabner, author of "Patty's Got a Gun." Patricia Hearst in 1970s America. Thank you, Bill, for talking to the University of Chicago Press. Welcome.
2: Well, thank you. My pleasure.
1: It is February of 1974, and I've just heard about the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Do I know anything about the major actors in the story? Am I surprised?
2: My sense is that Patty Hearst herself, of course, the great principal in this case, was not, not known anyplace but among her friends and uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, she she uh, wasn't living the life of the rich and famous. She was, uh, you know, living in a townhouse in, in Berkeley and uh, doing her laundry at a laundromat. Uh, so my sense is she was, you know, she was. It's pretty clear she was. She was an unknown, of course. Her name was very famous. She's the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, the great uh, newspaper uh, magnate, and uh, and she would be especially well known in the Bay Area because her father uh, Randolph Hearst was still in the newspaper business. Uh, and uh, uh, helping to run the, uh, the San Francisco Examiner, he was an important person in that community, as, as uh, was her mother. As for the SLA, this is a, a real small group uh, that uh, just that comes to uh, to uh, to uh, public knowledge, and just in a few months before Patty's kidnapped in November 6, 1973, when Marcus Foster, who's the superintendent of schools in Oakland, is murdered. The SLA takes uh, credit for this killing, uh, and uh, at that point, of course, uh, you know it's a, a, a huge story, especially in the Bay Area, uh, and to some extent nationally. The, uh, but beyond that, my sense is that nationally, uh, the SLA is not an important factor. It's just too small to, for most people to, uh, to be interested in it until the kid, kidnapping takes place.
1: So Marcus Foster, uh, was the superintendent in, uh, in the Oakland, uh, in the Oakland system, and he was African-American. Uh, were there racial overtones to the, uh, to the emergence of the Symbionese Liberation Army?
2: Well, uh, the group was white, uh, the, uh, for, uh, with the exception of, of one person, uh, and, uh, Donald LaFriese, who was black, uh, white, middle class, young, uh, the, uh, so there were racial overtones I don't know exactly what your question means. there were racial overtones in the uh, Foster was black. Uh, they were upset with Foster, I think not because he was black, but because uh, uh, he was on the verge of I, I gather or had issued uh, identity cards to Oakland students, and this was considered a, an authoritarian action by this by this group. Certainly the response was absurd and it was a major mistake on the part of the organization because. There was no respect for this act at all. Actually, Foster was quite popular as a superintendent general.
1: So so there was a uh, then a perception much more along the lines of uh, concerns about, say, potential fascism in the state rather than sort of broader racial well, issues. Well,
2: that was one of the concerns of, this, of the SLA, right, at that time.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about Patty Hearst. Uh, was there something about Patty Hearst or uh, the time period in which she lived that made her more vulnerable to uh, the kinds of transformation or brainwashing uh... Than she might have otherwise been uh... subject to say twenty years before
2: well uh, leaving aside the question of whether she indeed was brainwashed which is a real difficult question but um, and i'm not sure i have a clear answer to that but the, the simplest answer to the question of, of whether she was vulnerable to transformation is yes i think uh... and here i'm gonna sound a little bit like the prosecution which brought up a, a bunch of things about her and tried to pre- suggest that she was vulnerable um, to begin with, she wasn't really satisfied, I think, with her life in Berkeley from what she's written about it. Uh, she wasn't especially well grounded. That is, she, she hadn't really settled on a life course. She had some interest in art history but hadn't really decided on a career. She especially disliked the way people defined her when she would meet them as a Hearst. You know, the first thing they'd ask about was her Hearst uh, background. Uh, she really wanted to be treated as an individual, so she—I think she was ready for for change of some kind. Um, might might say she was potentially uh, receptive to to uh, to personal and political change, to becoming a different person. That's uh, from her perspective. Uh, from the perspective, I could I could also talk about the 60s and 70s in terms of transformation too. Maybe I should do that just briefly. She. Uh, uh, you know, personally, I grew up and uh, you know came of age in the, in the 50s, in the early 60s, when what I would call a, a kind of linear life was in vogue. Which means that you know I was expected to go to school, and in my case, go to graduate school, then go to work, and so forth, and just go through this process without, in a sense, really thinking about it. Um, but the 60s brought a sense of possibilities, not only. Well, to, to just about everyone, and that seeped into the 1970s too. So that there, it just opened up a whole sense that one could transform oneself and be something different. That one, you know, one could drop out of school. One could take drugs and trans. That was a, you know, chemically changed itself. If you were a woman, you you could uh, didn't have to be a housewife. You could you could uh, you could go to work. Or, um, if you were on welfare you could demand one's rights as a welfare recip- recipient. So I think uh, Patty benefits from this or as part of this grows up with this heritage of possibilities that if she could imagine herself transformed in a way in ways that people living even ten years before that couldn't.
1: What are uh, some of the things that was so uh, striking about uh, Patty's actions in the seventies? What was so troubling to the people around her?
2: Well. She participated in a bank robbery uh, the, uh, in uh, the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco uh, in about uh, a little more than two months after she was kidnapped. Um, I think uh, the second thing she did, uh, which occurred, uh, I don't know, perhaps a month or a few weeks after that, uh, occurred in Los Angeles after the SLA had moved to uh, its, uh, uh, t- to Los Angeles. The uh, Patty and uh, Bill and Emily Harris were out with their in their VW van, van going shopping. Uh, they stopped at a place called Mel's, a sporting goods store, parked the car in the, the van uh, across the street in a parking lot, and, and uh, Bill and Emily went into the store, leaving Patty in the van with four guns. Now, obviously, Patty could have, you know, run away, which he didn't. But not only that, actually, while while Bill's in the, Bill's in the store, he uh, while they're in the store, Bill steals a small, uh, I think it's called a bandol- bandolier, which is designed to hold ammunition, an uh, item that costs a few dollars. He's caught shoplifting this item, tries to get out of the store, and he and Emily and the store, somebody in the store are wrestling on the ground outside the store, and they're trying to Bill down. Um, Patty grabs uh, one of the guns, a uh, semi-automatic rifle from the van and puts it out the window of the uh, front window and starts shooting at, the, at whatever we don't really know, but hitting the facade and the bullets are going off the facade of uh, the front of Mel's. She runs out of the 30 bullets in that and she picks up another gun and, uh, and empties that one too. With the light, the bullets going off the light fixture, and, and, uh, and again, in the, and of course, this scares everybody, uh, Bill and Emily Harris, to uh, get away. They run across the street, they jump in the van, and they're off. So this incident, which became, of course, this was dealt with at the trial. Patty had to defend it at the trial, even though it's after the bank robbery for which being was being tried. This was a, this was a serious problem uh, for lots of people. Then, of course, she went on the, on the lam. She was gone for what was called the missing year, um, roughly 15 months, where she went east and returned to the west uh, and participated in um, another bank robbery, in this case driving one of the cars that was used to, uh, to get away, and uh, some other actions. So it's, just, in a way, the sum total of these, but I suppose especially the incident at Mell, um, which was the focus of the trial.
1: So she goes from a uh, stunning kidnap victim uh, dragged out of her apartment to a uh, participant in uh, in in a set of robberies. So uh, That's did right. did, uh, did America then think that uh, she was coerced into her crimes or or was she a willing accomplice?
2: Uh, well, actually I think the uh, these things these things change that is now you know they changed uh, you know depending on what What was happening uh to her um if you if uh, if you recall the sla issued a bunch of a bunch of uh, tapes that had her voice on them and uh, on one of the tapes she announces that she's become a member of the sla and so american you know i mean at this point some people felt that she had already turned into a willing accomplice they were willing to accept her her word for that the Hibernia robbery turns some more people against her. Mel's even more, um, and uh, uh, and and certainly the the sense that that she had a year uh, to escape or to abandon this group and did not do it. Even when she there were numerous times when she, when she wasn't living with any of them. Um, so I think you know these these uh, this did give people a sense that she was was a willing accomplice, uh, rather than uh, simply coerced.
1: We will be back with the second half of Bill Grabner in a moment.
0: Patty's Got a Gun, Patricia Hurst in 1970s America by William Grabner is published by the University of Chicago Press and is available at bookstores everywhere. News and information about the latest Chicago books can be found at www.press.uchicago.edu. The Press website has excerpts and other online features, and of course, a secure shopping cart for your orders. Chicago also publishes nearly 50 journals. For more about journals from the press, visit www.journals.uchicago.edu. And now on to the second half of the interview with William Grabner.
1: Uh, you talk about in the book uh, a number of uh, bits of work by uh, social psychologists uh, Stanley Milgram and Phil, Phil Zimbardo. These social psychologists and others have long posited to a great extent that situation supersedes personality in predicting behavior. And we've uh, certainly seen this to be plausibly so um, in such recent phenomena as Abu Ghraib uh, and, of course, the Milgram experiments and the Zimbardo uh, Stanford prison study. Why uh, didn't then... Uh, this type of defense uh, work for Patty Hearst, Why couldn't it work?
2: Well, without describing this work, I, uh, you know, Milgram and Zimbardo and the situation per- versus personality debate, I would, uh, one response is that this is really new work. I mean, uh, uh, Milgram is, uh, does his experiments in 1963, but Zimbardo's uh, experiments are not until 1971, and the situation versus personality debate uh, launched by uh, Walter Michel, uh is a uh, you know really begins in 1968 and is hot in the early 1970s so these ideas are really quite new uh and um, that's part of it and the uh and in a way Patty's trial is about these ideas i mean that's one of the reasons why it's a compelling trial is because people are being faced with these you know new ideas of what human beings might be that they might be it's sort of infinitely and easily malleable and um, there's resistance to these ideas and discussions about them so that's one of the reasons why the trial is, in, is important. Um, the, uh, uh, I would say uh, one of the reasons that, the, uh, that I suppose that you you can't use this work um, to defend her is that people generally are more comfortable with the idea of character you know the notion that there's something uh, there's a solid core to, to all of us, to the self that we kind of are what we are, and we're, we can't be changed and can't be moved very easily. Uh, people really want to believe that, and have I think do believe that over time. Uh, and and uh, despite what social scientists or scientists say about the self, that is, it takes a long time and, and uh, to to change these ideas. Uh, beyond this, there's no there's no precedent in the law for a defense uh, based on brainwashing you know, on, or, or what the social scientists were calling, instead of brainwashing, they used the term coercive persuasion. That wasn't a part of the law. It's conceivable that it could have become part of the law uh, through Patty's case, but of course that didn't turn out to be true. Um, and that, of course, begs the question of, of, of why, why people, you know, that, that wasn't a, a possibility. Why couldn't, there was no precedent for this and why it wasn't about to become one. And that, I think, is fundamentally because the law is uh, the laws about what we do, for the most part, as a discipline. It's about what we do rather than why we do it. I mean, we are interested in um, in intent to some, to some extent, but, but not to the extent that we're willing to, to say that the intent to commit a crime is an excuse for committing a crime. Um, the, uh, the exception to this is what, what's called the defense of direct duress, that is, if you're under direct duress, under fear for your life and in a kind of immediate way, uh, it is a defense. That is, uh, and Patty could have used that defense in the bank uh, for, for uh, committing the bank robbery. She could have said, well, they were pointing guns at me, and she did. That was part of her defense. But there's less direct arrests. I mean, it's harder to make that case for what happened in Mel's, uh, for example or for the, for the missing year. So I, I suppose uh, those are all answers. And as the decade goes by, there's a reaction against this whole sort of situational idea, which really, to me, is identified with, this, with the 60s and the early 70s. You know, there's a lot of hostility to the idea, especially as sort of, I would call them, right-wing or, uh, ideas of individual responsibility begin to filter into the, into the culture in the, in the mid and late 70s and, and into the 80s. You know, it became increasingly difficult to present Patty as simply somebody in a in a situation.
1: One last question. Uh, what would you say, then, was the uh, central lesson of the Patty Hearst case? What would you like, uh, perhaps, readers to take away?
2: Uh, well, there are, I, I have several. I, I think I would point to several. Uh, one is that nothing happens outside of history, outside of culture. That's really what uh, Patty's Got a Gun is about. It's an attempt to describe the... The uh, historical and cultural uh, setting for what for this trial and what happened to her, and to understand it, understand really why it's important. Um, I'd say more specifically, uh, another important lesson is that Patty was convicted because the the country was moving from left to right, and Patty gets caught in this transition in 1976. She's right in the middle of it, but but you can feel those the uh, you know, sort of the Reagan years, kind of infringing on that courtroom uh, in, in early 1976 as the trial goes on and influencing um, the uh, proceedings uh, and the jury's verdict. The, uh, I would say that the third uh, lesson is that most of the time people want to believe that they're free, that they have free will, uh, and, and Patty uh, made it difficult for, well, Patty's actions, weren't in conformity with that. The, the sense was that Patty had free will, she would have escaped. She would have left this group. She would have done something to, to uh, you know, she would have abandoned this course. Um, the, uh, and I suppose the, the last uh, of the conclusions is that human beings are remarkably malleable. They can be made to do surprising things, uh, whether it's uh, uh, participation in the Holocaust or in, in Patty's case, uh, rob a bank and uh, and shoot guns and participate in in a uh, an extremist group.
1: We have been talking with William Gravener, author of Patty's Got a Gun. Thanks, Bill.
2: You're welcome. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening to this download from the University of Chicago Press. Additional episodes can be found on iTunes or on any podcast aggregator. Your comments and questions are always welcome. And the email address for the show is publicity at press.uchicago.edu. Copyright 2008, the University of Chicago Press, all rights reserved.